Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. The poem I'd like to talk about today is book length. So it is too long to talk about in detail on this, but I'm going to select some of what I think are representative and also, of course, brilliant bits. And consequently, time dictates that this week I'll sacrifice some of the very close reading I like to apply to poems in order to give a more general sense of this whole book. It's called The Illegal Age. It was published in 2018 and it's written by a poet called Ellen Hinsey. So if you flick through it, it is an unlikely poetry book. It's like a sort of political briefing dossier. Reports, files, evidence, lots of numbers, headings, subheadings. It doesn't look like a very happy home for poetry. And that, I suppose, is exactly where poetry needs to be, a sort of a virus in the machine. So you get the cold business-like official line of a government, of a regime in this book, but it's infiltrated by compassion. It's a bit like, um, do you remember that image of anti-Vietnam War protesters and one of them puts a flower down the barrel of a soldier's gone and it's that it's something beautiful amidst a lot of militaristic and hardcore political horror so ellen hinsey is an american who lives in europe and is a proper serious political prose writer as well as being a poet she was actually at the criminal tribunal for former yugoslavia and heard lots of witness accounts of all sorts of atrocities and terrible things that happened during the Balkans conflict. And uh, she said, and this is an interesting quote, I think, as a poet, I was afraid of aestheticising the experience. So afraid of completely turning it into art, if, of using someone else's tragedy. You can't get away from the fact that that poetry comes with its own sort of music. It is it is a pleasurable entertainment. And I think she didn't want to dance on the graves of any of these real people with their real stories. So it's a poetry that in lots of ways stays quite close to prose, almost as a sign of respect. So it's got... It's, a, it's like you're reading these briefings from, I don't know, maybe an East European government and the poetry just happens to be in there. Like when you see flowers blossoming out of the cracks between paving stones. Oh, too many out-of-context flower similes. OK, enough of that. So it's split into three sections, the book. I, I feel I can only really focus on one. So I'm going to deal with the section called Smoke, which is essentially about World War II, but um, it's also about the smoke of war, fire, sort of earth-scorching policies, and the way smoke conceals things and how many things are concealed in a hardline regime. There is a section called Ice about the Cold War and one called Obscurity, which is about the sort of, I suppose, the hidden present 
uh, where we are now, the, the, the stuff that we're a bit too close to maybe to really get. But anyway, I'm going to focus on smoke. And I'll start off with a report. And it, this is actually called The Illegal Age, as is the whole book. I'll read you the first bit. Nothing happens quickly. Each day weighs on the next until the instant comes. Nothing happens quickly. It takes time for a figure who makes his slow way along the foggy lane in innocence to vanish. So nothing happens quickly. Each day weighs on the next. And I think it's that waiting, that waiting. If you are a citizen of a country in the grip of an oppressive regime, the feeling that it is going to happen to you or yours one day, constantly that pressure and that tension is upon you. Nothing happens quickly. I think that phrase, that repeated phrase, nothing happens quickly, is used in two different ways because nothing happens quickly. Each day weighs on the next, gives you that sense of that dull waiting fear when it's not at the sharp end of fear it's at in the gut it's in there slow like an ache and then until the instant comes nothing happens quickly the instant comes so when it finally happens in this case a figure walking down a foggy lane suddenly vanishing it's very quick and nothing happens quickly then, I think, means that nothing, because this will be hidden, it will be denied, it almost won't exist officially. Well, it definitely won't exist officially. It is nothing, and that nothing happens quickly. Ping. And the, the person has gone. It takes time for, I say a person, it takes time for a figure who makes his slow way a figure now. Already the person is becoming a statistic. He's already on his way from the foggy lane to the file. And he makes his slow way along the foggy lane. The foggy lane, everything's hidden, everything's secret, and then he vanishes. And it continues. For tables laid with silver... For the simple woolen hat twisted in rough hands when prayers are said. It takes time to not suffer the pain of others. To not hope for just mercy. Wow, okay. So, for tables laid with silver. Now that suggests to me power, but also betrayal. Also well, I, I knew a woman from who'd grown up in East Germany, and when the Berlin Wall came down, she was allowed, the citizens were allowed to see the files that the East German government had kept on them. So this woman went along to Dresden, I think, to, to see her file, waited in a room, and was just handed this this big lever arch file and left to read it. And in it, she found... Lots and lots of communications from people who she regarded as very close friends saying that she'd said something about the government at a party. She'd said something about communism in the pub. All that stuff 
little bits of betrayal to try and get some sort of reward from the government. And it, it was a heartbreaking experience for her. And here, for tables laid with silver, it sounds like the old, the classic biblical betrayal, 30 pieces of silver. But this line, or these two lines, I, this is a beautiful and powerful thing. So all this, nothing happens quickly. It takes time. So it takes time for the figure who makes his slow way along the foggy lane in innocence to vanish for tables laid with silver, all that takes time. It also takes time for the simple woolen hat twisted in rough hands when prayers are said. And if ever there was an image of powerlessness, frustrated powerlessness, it's that. The simple woolen hat twisted in rough hands when prayers are said. The anguish and that's how you cope with it. You you twist your simple woolen hat in rough hands when prayers are said. To me, that says so much about what it must be like to live under an oppressive regime and not be able to speak out against it. And of course, the simple woolen hat and the rough hands suggests the hat of a poor citizen and the rough hands of the manual worker. It goes on, it takes time to not suffer the pain of others, to not hope for just mercy. So now it's a sort of a numbness that you're buying into, not suffering the pain of others, and even hope has gone. And it ends this, this bit. Nothing happens quickly. The ravaged book of the ancestors remains open, rustles, persists. So the sense of family and community keeps the book of the ancestors open. So they don't forget. It might not be in the, the files. It might not be in the ledgers kept at the local government buildings, but it's in the ravaged book of the ancestors. So it's about how this memory remains with the people, the, the disappeared remain with the people who knew them. And I suppose it's about the scars that are left. And maybe this book is, is part of that, as it says at the end, the, the, the book of the ancestors rustles and persists. And maybe this this book of poetry is part of that persistence a sort of a insistent witness to what's gone on i'm going to jump ahead a little bit to this is section four of the opening report the illegal age and i think this is a an attempt to try and find out when things changed when the world got darker when evil started to blossom. Even on that first September morning, there still remained certain dregs, residue, artefacts. I think she means they're still some of the old ways, the old, more honourable ways. There still remained certain dregs, residue, artefacts. The Polish cavalry setting out in full uniform to meet panzers in a wet autumn forest among the poplars. 
Oh, another great image. The Polish cavalry setting out in full uniform. So holding on to some sort of noble, traditional way of fighting wars. To meet panzers. Panzers were like state-of-the-art German tanks. The Polish cavalry setting out in full uniform to meet panzers in a wet autumn forest among the poplars. I mean, that is a horrible sense of the old world and its, its beliefs and its, its standards compared to just high-tech destruction. So can we say it was then the precise instant of change or was it before or in the near approaching after? Though for some time yet... Plans were still drafted in ink, and in a rare second a hand might hesitate, fear like a covenant, tentatively restraining a winter sleeve, even if one was under orders. And I think what that is about is plans are still drafted in ink. So for a while, the old way still went, went on, and there was still humanity in the orders, still humanity in the plans. In a rare second, a hand might hesitate. Fear like a covenant. A covenant here, often an agreement with God, but certainly a promise, a sense of honour. Fear like a covenant, tentatively restraining the winter sleeve, even if one was under orders. So your conscience, your sense of duty, your sense of right or wrong, an individual sense of right or wrong, could still get into the machine. It could still affect those plans that were drafted in ink. The writer might still hesitate. The general might think, hold on a minute, do we want to do this? There was a sense that human beings and conscience were still relevant before the illegal age happened and changed everything. So you get a sense of how this poetry works. It's still poetry, but it sort of bleeds into and is informed by all these dark happenings. So it's all about this, when did it happen? When did people stop seeing war? For all its horrors, are still shot through with a sort of nobility, still shot through with standards and honour and ways of doing things and ways of not doing things. You know, the white flag, the Geneva Convention, the treatment of prisoners, all those things that you sort of feel were untouchable at one stage. I'm going to go on to the Handbook of Smoke, which is under the heading Evidence. And that whole section is split into several tiny subsections, each with its own heading. So I'll just give you just a few of these to give you a, a, a taste of it. Number six, procedure. You can receive the rust-burdened trains. You can assemble the thirst-afflicted bodies. Seven, radical will. You can then do what will never be able to be described in language. 
And throughout this book, language is one of the victims. That's one of the things that the regime, whichever regime it is, is always challenging with action. Action so extreme that the words, the language falls short, can, can hardly describe it. But this, that's the suggestion. But this book is full of poetry and of poets, um, references to other poets who wrote about these things. So they sort of fight against the notion of the, the indescribable. And then there's this bit that really grabbed me. Number eight, finis mundi, which means the world ends. From each mouth you can erase the sacred vowel lodged at the base of speech. That really felt significant to me. From each mouth you can erase the sacred vowel lodged at the base of speech. And I, I had many thoughts about what that could be. And then I was randomly reading an article in a magazine called The Tablet, written by a French rabbi called uh, Delphine Auvillier. Um, I hope you'll forgive me the pronunciation. And it talks about when the Hebrews, which are relevant to this section as it's about World War II, obviously, when the Hebrews were given revelation on Mount Sinai, when they became the sort of chosen people, when they got the special news. And it's about how Jewish scholars have got all sorts of different interpretations of what was actually given to the people on that occasion. When I say the people, this is like the Hebrew people who had died, who were living at the time and who were yet to be born. It's a, a gift to the whole Hebrew nation of Revelation. Some scholars think they got the Ten Commandments. Some think they just got the first two commandments. Some think they just got the first commandment. Some think, some think they just got the first word of the first commandment, which is I am. It means I am. And then there is a group of scholars who feel that the Revelation was just the first letter of the first word, of the first sentence, of the first commandment. That's all revelation was. But it's a thing called the, the Aleph, that letter. And the thing is, it's a silent letter. So all they were given was a silent letter, like being given the K at the beginning of knife or knock. It's a bit more complicated than that, though. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from the article. I know I'm... You're saying this is a... This is a poetry podcast. It shouldn't be articles. Anyway, this is what Gershom Sholem, a master of Jewish mysticism, said about this letter, the Aleph, this silent letter. In Hebrew, the consonant Aleph represents nothing more than the position taken by the larynx when a word begins with a vowel. Okay, thus, so it's the mouth sort of getting ready to speak. Thus, the aleph may be said to denote the source of all articulate sound. So the gift that was given to the Hebrews was the seed of all that could ever be said. And revelation 
was a revelation of the infinite potential of language. And I don't feel bad about taking you there because that seems very relevant to this book. This book is all about what happens to language, not only to people, but to language, the two obviously being interlocked. And this gift was given to the Hebrews. So when we're talking about vile oppression in this section, the World War II section, obviously Jewish people are at the forefront of your mind. And I'll read you Finis Mondi World Ends Again. From each mouth you can erase the sacred vowel lodged at the base of speech. So you can actually take away that fundamental gift, or that's what the regime believes. Some sort of resentment about the special revelation they've been given, but we can take that away. Another undermining of language, we can attack the very seed of language and this sort of magical gift that our victims have been given. So I'm moving now to the end of this section. Here we go. Number six, file six, seven, five, three, four, verbatim. And then a subheading, Ukraine 1942. Ukraine in 42 was a, a, a place where there was a, a systematic execution of Jews by the, the Nazis. But this is the first real specifics amongst the headings. Everything else has felt like it could be applied to all sorts of oppressive regimes to all sorts of human suffering under that kind of control. This one actually names Ukraine 1942. I'll just read you a bit of it. There is no other way to describe it as if the world's sight had been torn away, as if an angular bird paralysed on a roof's edge sensed acts beyond the realm of the tongue, again that attack on language, tracked ruin in the wind's ashen logbook. So this bird, the ash in the air, thus forming the wind's ashen logbook, is telling this bird that something has happened, something has been burned, something bad has occurred. But in the end, nothing can be foreseen. The dirt-splattered trucks unloaded the men. They had their instructions, but the instructions had no discernible border, no threshold. Now, if we zing back to when we were talking about those plans written in ink, when the winter sleeve could be tugged, when there was some humanity where you could think, oh, I know I'm under orders, of course, being under orders was the great Nazi excuse at the end of the war. But if you remember back in that earlier poem, even being under orders didn't completely blot out the individual conscience. Here, this is not plans written in ink by a human hand with human feelings and human restraint. It says they had their instructions, but the instructions had no discernible border, no threshold. So they really could do what they wanted to do as long as the destruction was carried out. Instead, they took them where they stood. So now this is how they kill their prisoners. 
in the doorway by the oaken fence where water was quickly drawn or where bread was interred in the oven and that phrase interred in the oven has a dark echo to it or in the barn's obscurity so they killed these people in the barn at the farm or in the barn's obscurity where captive also the animals had no release from their turmoil so the animals nature now is starting to feel this horror as well like that bird that sensed death and burning in the wind's ashen logbook i'm going to move quickly so forced up against clapboard they're against these wooden fences and walls Together they fell, bodies laying slain against flanks at the animals, lying on the animals. Bodies laying slain against flanks in the warm milk of new blood. That combination of dairy and death. Bodies laying slain against flanks in the warm milk of new blood. And the sky above them became a crater and below them the land recoiled. I say nature now is, is against this, this horror. Below them the land recoiled, shuddering three times before settling back like a basalt slab into mud. As an actual, seems like a physical recoil of the earth against this activity. Behind the wooden house where blunt, scored logs were stacked, the bodies were piled. On the wet ground, rain-filled weeds delivered their grief. That was all they had by way of mourners was these weeds. Weeds, of course, is also a word for mourning clothes. So that's operating here as well. Rain-filled weeds delivered their grief. Far off, a dog on chain today. So even the dog is free and these people aren't. But again, it's back to nature's response now. Far off, a dog on chain today barked, went mad. Rats burrowed into the uncompromising earth. There was a black trumpet blast of silence. And that is like it's from the book of Revelation from the end of time. A trumpet of staggered air. And it ends, but there were no words afterwards. So none were said. And again, it's about an assault on language as well as on people. And here is poetry sort of fighting its corner, I suppose you'd say. There is much more in this. The next section and final section is called uh, Number Seven Testimony, The Four Horsemen, Warsaw 1944. So in Warsaw... There was a resistance uprising in, in 44 and the Nazi retribution was enormous and destroyed almost all of, of the city. In this, Ellen Hinsey is trying to get across, I think, how that must feel, that level of destruction. I'm just going to read the first bit of this for time reasons. When on that final day, the heavens thunderous black trumpets announced a siege of absolute darkness. Now, that reference to black trumpets refers back to the ending of the piece I just read you. And it's interesting, that continuity, because that, if you remember, was subtitled Ukraine 1942. This is Warsaw 1944. The fact that it picks up on the same image. In these first parts of this, 
we have a reference to thunderous black trumpets and terrifying silence. And in the piece about Ukraine, we had black trumpet blast of silence. It's showing the continuity, even though we're in a different place now and two years later, the continuity of horror and cruelty and the continuity of the illegal age from one place to another, from one year to another, ongoing. I'm going to read you this and then I'm going to leave you alone. But this, this, this is about, it's trying to get across the almost complete destruction of a city in retribution for speaking out, for actually trying to save language as well as obviously to save the people but to be able to speak to regain the sacred vowel if you like okay and just showing what the level of destruction was like like the whole universe was falling apart when on that final day the heavens thunderous black trumpets announced a siege of absolute darkness only to roar crimson with a temper of hailstones. So it's completely dark now in dust and smoke, but the ammunition is still coming. You're still being fired upon. And there followed a terrifying silence. Get this. As if the hoar-frosted epoch of after the stars had begun, which for so long had seemed eternally nailed to the sky... So this smoke, this billowing black smoke hides the stars and it feels like, I'm going to read it again because it's so good, as if the hoar-frosted epoch of after the stars had begun. It's the end of order, it's the end of permanence, it's the end of magic and wonder is what it feels like. And that description of the stars, which for so long had seemed eternally nailed to the sky, and it goes on, and the globe's noble sphere was derailed in its practised eclipse. So the very earth seemed to have lost its stability. There was nothing to hold on to. Everything had been taken away in smoke and fire and oppressive violence. I intended to read you more from this book, but I, I don't want to keep you too long. There's so much in Ellen Hintz is The Illegal Age. And it creates a tone and a mood and an atmosphere that you submerge in when you read the book. And I don't feel your... I feel that everything I've seen on the news since then about regimes oppressing people, about what is going on, which we don't really think about when we're drinking our... Bonaparte brandy and eating more than enough apple pie, as Gilbert O'Sullivan once said. While we're doing that, this book has made me think what it must really be like to be in that position of complete fear and complete oppression and where language has lost all its meaning and that that resource that we go to of expressing ourselves just becomes impossible okay so it's ellen hinsey it's the illegal age and i think you would be slightly changed forever if you read it 
So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. <laughs> Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. Oh, and why not buy my new book, How to Enjoy Poetry by Frank Skinner. P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week. Listener.